Well, let's pray. Well, Father, we do worship you and we worship your Son. And we do pray that you will give us the grace to trust Jesus more. I pray that our congregation, who is led by you, purchased by you, and transformed by you, will listen carefully to the teachings of your Son, Jesus Christ, that you might help us to become a community of grace. In Christ's name, amen. Well, it was a little over a decade ago when a young woman by the name of Heidi Withers spent the holidays with her in-laws. Well, not yet her in-laws, her future in-laws. And after the event, she received an email from her prospective mother-in-law. And by the way, just so you know, her fiance's name is Freddie Bourne. It comes up in this email that was posted online. Yes, it is juicy. This is what she got from her future mother-in-law. If you want to be accepted by the wider Bourne family, I suggest you take some guidance from experts with utmost haste. Here are a few examples of your lack of manners. When you are a guest in another's house, you do not declare what you will and will not eat unless you are positively allergic to something. You do not remark that you do not have enough food. You do not start before everyone else. You do not take additional helpings without being invited to by your host. When a guest in another's house, you do not lie in bed until late morning in households that rise early. You fall in line with the house norms. You should never insult the family you're about to join at any time and most definitely not in public. You regularly draw attention to yourself. Perhaps you should ask yourself why. No one gets married in a castle unless they own it. It is brash celebrity-style behavior. If your parents are unable to contribute very much towards the cost of your wedding, it would be most ladylike and gracious to lower your sights and have a modest wedding as befits both your incomes. One could be accused of thinking that Heidi Withers must be patting herself on the back for having caught a most eligible young man. I pity Freddie. I, I get tense just reading that, right? <laughs> but don't you see the, the, the irony? Mrs. Bourne's ripping her daughter-in-law for being rude in a pretty rude way. And you know what Heidi did? She posted the email online. Yeah, he got this viral virtual cat fight going on, and it's not pretty. And there's one statement I do agree with in this email, and that's the last phrase. I pity Freddie. Here's a man caught in the middle. And you see what happens when you have this censorious, judgmental back and forth. It doesn't lead for a peaceful family relationship. Now, in Luke chapter 6, Jesus is seeking to build a community of faith and a community of disciples, a spiritual family, if you will. His life is threatened legitimately for the first time. He knows that the end is at hand. And so he goes to the mountain and he prays and he asks the Lord to give him his basically spiritual descendants, his apostles who will continue the ministry after he's gone. 
And so he comes back with 12 names, and then he teaches and he instructs them. He prepares them to minister in a world that will be hostile to him and his message. And that is why he talks about this great reversal that's going to happen in the future, where those who are hungry, thirsty, and persecuted, and those who mourn will be blessed. He also prepares them to to know how to engage their enemies, and that's to love them, right? For those who have been transformed by love are able to love not because the other person is lovable, but because they have been loved and they have put on the character of their Redeemer. In Luke 6, 35-36, Jesus says, But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. So we are children of mercy, and we are to be chips off the old block. If He is merciful to us, we are to be merciful to others. And that attitude of mercy is now extended within the community. Jesus is, is pivoting now. He's, he begins to talk about family relationships, reconciliation. How do you deal with sin in the camp? How do you address your brothers and sisters? So look at verse 37, and this is the text for the day. It's, it is 37 through 42. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite! First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Now, notice the use of brother and this element of forgive. This is a community commandment where Jesus is projecting into the future, and he wants a people who has been redeemed by mercy and grace to extend that mercy and grace to each other within the family of God. And this is of of critical importance. I know of a church that over the last 15 years have had four different senior pastors. And with every, every pastor change, there's three of them, there has been a church split that goes with it. And the church splits are especially nasty because many families go to this church and many of the children are told that they can't play or be friends with the people who left the church. And do you know what happened to those children? They grew up, and they walked away from the faith because it was a community of conflict instead of a community of grace. Do you see that? How we treat each other is of gospel importance. 
And that's why church unity is extraordinarily important. Uh, Our elders, we adopted years ago something called our relational commitments. Uh, It's kind of like our our membership covenant. It's how we are to treat each other in the body of Christ. And this is a quote. It says this, We will make charitable judgments towards one another by believing the best about each other until we have the facts that prove otherwise. I'm going to say that again. We will believe, we will make charitable judgments towards one another by believing the best about each other until we have facts that prove otherwise. Now, charity comes from charis, which comes from the Greek word, that is a Greek word for grace, right? Gracious judgments, merciful judgments, believing the best, giving the benefit of the doubt until facts prove otherwise. And that is really what Jesus is trying to do here. He's trying to make a community of charitable judges. Charitable judges. Where his mercy and grace basically flavors every relationship within that community. Now to become that, there's really three general commands. Number one, err on the side of mercy. Two, err on the side of humility. And then address your errors first. You do all these things, you will become a charitable judge. So let's look at this first point to err on the side of mercy. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use will be measured back to you. Now that first phrase, judge not, is every non-Christian's favorite verse, isn't it? Judge not. You're commanded in the Bible not to judge me. Sure, I might be a vile, defrauding, lazy pervert. But at least I don't judge anyone unlike you, right? I mean, we've all been there. We've had that blown back into our face. And, and, and we know that judgment is something that you are supposed to do. Judgment is something that Jesus is doing. Judge is actually judging, Jesus is actually judging people who are judging others. We learn later on in Luke eleven forty two. but woe to you Pharisees. That sounds like judgment. That's said by Jesus, right? This is not talking about, let's say, uh, making an ethical declaration about the right or wrong behavior of somebody. Uh, We are called to judge people. We're commanded to judge the household of God, according to Paul. Jesus teaches in Matthew 18, 15, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And then he says, take another witness with you, then tell it to the church. And when you think about church restoration... It begins with identifying whether or not somebody is in sin, right? You have to make a determination. And then you confront them on that sin. For instance, stop committing adultery. And if they do not listen to you, you have to make a judgment. Have they repented or not? And if they haven't, then you take the next step, right? So this is not talking about making no ethical declarations about the behavior of other people. But what it is talking about 
is a censorious judgment. He says, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Notice how judgment and condemnation kind of are fused together. There's a phrase I heard, elevation by negation. To feel better about myself, I will tear other people down. This is part of the joy of social media, isn't it? You're scrolling through your phone, somebody posts that fitness pic, and you think, why is she wearing that outfit and putting it on Facebook? Oh, honey, airbrushing can only do so much. Why does he not believe in wearing a shirt after a workout? You know what? He's going to look pretty different when he turns 48. (laughs) You see that family photo of the family on the beach? I know what he does. How does he make that kind of money? Probably doesn't give, right? Patting myself on the back. Somebody kind of spills their guts on Facebook. T-M-I. Here you go again. Try to draw attention to yourself. Or somebody gets all lovey-dovey with their spouse on the internet, and you think, it's just all for show. Nobody talks that way about their spouse. See what I'm saying? Why is there a tendency to do that? It's because we have a natural bent to want to fault-find in other people because by tearing people down, we build ourselves up. Right? Because when you take the position of a judge, what are you doing? It's a... Uh, it's a position and a posture of authority, right? Where the person that you judge answers to your judgment. And so you are looking down on other people. You feel the freedom to condemn people in your mind. And Jesus warns, he says, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. This is the divine passive. Judge not and you will not be judged by God. Condemn not and you will not be condemned by God. God. Now, can you imagine if God used the standard that you use on other people on you? Lord calls you home. You're in heaven. You can't believe you're there. And there's the Lord, and you go up to him, expecting to be welcomed. And then He begins to nitpick your life. He begins to assume the worst in you. He doesn't make charitable judgments about you. He sees everything that you do wrong, just like you did with other people. Would that not be terrifying? You see, when people are addicted to doing this, it shows that there's something wrong with their soul. It could be that they've never experienced grace. They they cannot love because they've never been loved. They can't give grace because they've never experienced grace. That's one possibility. Another one is, you know, the the wheels of sanctification are just stuck in the mud. They just have a habit they cannot break. This might be one of the reasons why Jesus addresses the community of disciples with this command. You are stuck in a rut. And so he sobers people up by giving them the stick. Do you want to be judged in the way that you're judging other people? Kind of borrows a little bit from the golden rule here, doesn't he? But he doesn't just give them the stick. He also gives them the carrot. He says, forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put 
into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Now, there's a relationship between forgiving and giving. When you forgive, you forgive somebody's debt, right? You, you cancel that. You are impoverished for their benefit. When you give, you're also impoverished for somebody's benefit. So when you freely give of yourself, what can you expect? And I love this language here. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap. Now, you all might have been raking leaves, right? And if you have a, a limited amount of trash bags, you don't just fill up the bag and just call it good. You've got to push it down, right? You've got to, you've got to think about the environment and plastic and, and cost. And, and this is the idea here is you show up at a grain market and they'd have these tunics. And so you kind of, you know, put your tunic out and they would, they would put some grain in there. And then they would kind of push it down so they could put more grain in there. Then they'd kind of shake it a little bit so they could put more grain in there. And then they'd pile it on top. See, that's the idea. Is if you give, God is going to give his good pleasure, his favor, his, his delight, and even more so. And so there's this positive implication. Yes, there's the stick. But there's also the joy of receiving much by refusing to have a condemnatory attitude, by not judging, but instead giving mercy and grace, and yes, even the benefit of the doubt. Right? There, there's a saying that you err on the side of caution. Right? If you're going to send out, you know, how, many, how many Christmas cards should I get? You don't get the exact number you think you should get. You get more than you think you need. Add 10%. Well, the idea is you err on the side of caution. You err on the side of mercy. Now, there is a place for rebuke. I mean, we are a church that believes in gracious confrontation. Um, there are times when you have to address the sins in others. And, and sometimes you, you hear about this err on the side of mercy and err on the side of caution. And there can almost be this fear that, well, this person's going to get away with it we got to deal with it now. And there are some sins that do have a certain amount of urgency. Don't get me wrong. But what I have learned is that unrepentant sin will always show itself more clearly. You wait till you have a clear shot, right? Now, you hunters, if I were to go hunting with you and I were to see a deer on the distant horizon 400 yards away and I took a shot, what would happen? Yeah, you'd call me an idiot. Pray for sanctification and say, well, there goes the day. Because you spook them away. You wait till you get a clear shot. Because the goal of confrontation is not to check a box to say, I did the confrontation, I'm godly. The goal of confrontation is restoration. So you wait for the right moment. And you make it very clear that the only reason why I'm bringing this up is because I care about you. And I think there's something wrong. And I've tried to find all the reasons to explain your behavior away, but it's clear that it's there. Does that make sense? You err on the side of mercy. Secondly, you err on the side of humility. He told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. So, Jesus starts with a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Now, I want to introduce you to a term. It's called ableism. 
right? That speaks of discrimination against disabled people, that our culture is known for having very negative stereotypes towards people with handicaps. Don't believe me? Captain Hook was disabled, and he's a villain. Darth Vader, also disabled, and he was a villain. And so there's pushback against ableism, and I came across this article in the Babylon Bee, my favorite time waster at work. (laughs) Don't judge me. And it's a great headline. I'm just going to read it to you. In a major blow to ableism, airline hires blind pilot. (laughs) Miramar, Florida. Spirit Airlines has hammered yet another nail in the coffin of ableism by hiring the world's first blind commercial airline pilot. Flight 247 from Orlando to St. Louis is set to be the first vision-impaired flight. The co-pilot will reportedly wear a blindfold for the duration of flight out of solidarity with his blind captain. Would he get on that plane? Right? And so you see the humor of that, and that's kind of what Jesus is bringing up here, right? You're going to have a blind person guiding a blind person? I mean, this is before the Americans with Disabilities Act, right? You don't have, like, guardrails on these other things. And if you ever go to Israel, it's a very mountainous area. If you go off the wrong way, well, you're going to both tumble to your doom. And so the idea is you have somebody who is blind, but he thinks he's qualified to be an airline pilot. He thinks he's qualified to be a spiritual leader. And when they grab onto somebody's hands and guide them and say, follow me, they follow them to their doom. Right? it's, It's blinding. And so you get into the question, so what exactly causes this blindness? Well, you get a picture of what causes the blindness later on in the gospel, specifically Luke 18, 10 through 14. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. The tax collector standing far off would not lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Right? What blinds him? It's pride. It's pride. Blinding self-righteousness. One thinker says, in God, you come up against someone which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. For as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Right? When you're judging people, what is the posture of you? You don't judge people like this. You judge people like this. You're always fault-finding, finding ways to look down on them, to try them in your mind. So what's the solution? Instead of being blinded by your, your pride and self-righteousness, verse 40, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Jesus puts his disciples in their place. 
Now, the Bible is a very honest book, and it deals with honest situations. And it's interesting, the night before Jesus is about to be crucified and lay down his life, right, the, this was the night when he took off his outer cloak and donned the clothing of a servant and washed his disciples' feet. What were the disciples doing? Well, they were arguing over who's the greatest. And this is what he says in rebuke in Luke 22, 25 through 27. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater one who reclines at the table or one who serves? It is not the one who reclines at the table, but I among you as the one who serves. Now, I was asked this question a couple weeks ago. Who is the greatest Christian alive today? Who is the greatest Christian alive today? The answer is, the most humble Christian is the greatest Christian alive today. Isn't that interesting? It's the most humble Christian who is the greatest. Humble people don't judge each other. Humble people are usually more overwhelmed by their sin than other people's sin. Humble people are not trying to exalt themselves by their self-righteousness. Humble people look to the righteousness of Christ as their only hope. And humble people are more prone to address their errors first, which is our next point. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take the speck, let me take out the speck that is in your eye. When you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck that is, that is in your brother's eye. Right? This is really a, a, a discourse about how to execute charitable judgments. The first, you need to notice the problem with this person is he specializes in, in finding the faults in others. That word speck speaks of maybe a, a little bit of sawdust or a speck of straw is a very small piece of dust. And so here is somebody who, who fancies himself to be in this position of spiritual authority. I am here to help you, oh hapless Christian. And so, oh, looks like you got a little speck there. But then Jesus says something, doesn't he? He doesn't notice the, the log, the joist, the beam, the, basically the, the telephone pole that is in his eye. He, and so, he says, brother, instead of saying, brother, take the, let me take the speck out of your own eye, which implies a certain amount of spiritual authority and maturity. Jesus calls him what? What does it say? You hypocrite. You pretender. You act godly, godly enough to be a spiritual authority to help other people with their sin when you yourself have this huge log 
sticking out of your eye. And, and a hypocrite's not a friendly term. Jesus uses it of the Pharisees when he calls them, you hypocrites, in Luke 13, 15. They specialize in the sins of others. Right? And I, I've seen this many times where learning how to rebuke other people is a means of seizing spiritual control in a relationship. You keep somebody on the defensive. You're always pointing out their sin and pointing out their sin and pointing out their sin. Somebody brings up your sin. Well, what about yours? And you're very good at machine gumming them into their place. Because there is a rush, isn't there? And the godlier the person you confront, the more godly you feel because you're godlier than that person. There is a rush to confronting other people. That's why assertiveness training and rebuking training in the hands of the wrong person can be dangerous. And so how do you deal with this? That there is a log in your eye. And we all have logs. I have logs. I don't see them, but you do, right? Well, the first thing is you take inventory. Ask yourself honest questions. Are you the husband who complains about his wife's lack of submission, yet you spend very little time at home serving your wife? Or are you the wife who complains that her husband's not a spiritual leader, but you nitpick him and show him all the reasons why he's not qualified to lead you? Or the gossip who spreads a lot of news about other people's sin, but neglect to bring up your own sin of slander? The employee complains about your boss being a tyrant when you yourself show up late and surf the internet at work time? Or the college student who critically evaluates your parents who just don't seem to get it spiritually and yet you don't do much to help out around the home? Are you the spouse who complains about your spouse who complains? Right? It, it, it happens, doesn't it? Are you the parents who seek to protect your kids from inappropriate content on the internet, but when they go to bed, you watch a movie that's inappropriate? Right? Are, are there just some obvious logs? I think, secondly, you need to be aware that one thing about self-righteousness is it, it does blind, right? He uses this image of blindness and eyesight for a reason. And that is because self-righteousness has a way of trying to explain away all of our sin and relabeling it as good things. I came across a great quote from Paul David Tripp. It's a little bit longer, but I think it's worth listening to. He says this, Sin lives in a costume. That's why it's hard to recognize. The fact that sin looks so good is one of the things that make it so bad. In order for it to do its evil work, it must present itself as something that is anything but evil. Life in a fallen world is like attending the ultimate masquerade party. Impatient yelling wears the costume of zeal for truth. Lust can masquerade as love of beauty. Gossip does its evil work by living in the costume of concern and prayer. Craving for power and control wears a mask of biblical leadership. Fear of man gets dressed up as a servant's heart. The pride of always being right masquerades as love for biblical wisdom. Evil simply doesn't present itself as evil, which is part of its draw. You'll never understand sin's sleight of hand until you acknowledge that the DNA of sin is deception. Now, what this means personally is that as sinners, we are all very committed to the gift of self-serving swindlers. And gift of self-serving swindlers. We're all too skilled at looking at our own wrong and seeing it as good. Right? Lament is really self-pity. 
Judgmentalism is discernment. Right? We, we all wear the mask. Thirdly, I think it's important to realize that you're really not fooling other people. You might have relabeled it. But one thing about a log being in your own eye, it's, it's very obvious to others. And frankly, it's kind of embarrassing when you see it for the first time, isn't it? Fourthly, remember that you've sinned. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 7, 21 through 22, Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourselves have cursed others. Isn't that interesting? Before you blow up at your teenage son who's being a punk, realize that you are a teenager and you are twice the punk as him. Further, you can never understand the fullness of somebody else's sin, but you can understand the fullness of your sin. Your sin is always a log in comparison to others. Did you know that? Because you can't see into their heart. God can and they can, but you can't. We often can't see into the extent of our heart, but we can more than other people around us. There's a sense where you have a greater weight for your own sin, where you truly see your sin as a log. And then fifthly, you humble yourself before God. 1 Peter 5, 6 through 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that at the proper time he may exalt you. You humble yourself by removing the log. You know, a lot of times it's just being very open and honest about some self-awareness. You know, self-righteousness comes out in me in these ways. It's something that I'm working on. You can pray for me. Right? That's often endearing, isn't it? So all that to say, first, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eyes. You're able to see your sin for what it is and see their sin for what it is. You're like uh, an, an eye surgeon who removes the cataracts before he does the delicate surgery on somebody else. So there is a place for correction here, isn't there? But what has to happen first? There is that painful process of removing the log from your own eye. And frankly, if somebody is very self-righteous, have you guys ever been confronted by a self-righteous person? Okay, don't raise your hand if it was me. I don't need to know that. But how seriously do you take it? You almost feel like that person wants to win this argument instead of win you. Right? It's not that effective. And, and frankly, you know, when somebody does need to be confronted and they are not in a good place spiritually, you, you, you do have to understand that it is a delicate operation. It can go south very quickly. And sometimes you can rebuke like Jesus and it doesn't go well. But that's why Paul says in First, I'm sorry, Galatians 6.1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Right? To be spiritual is to be walking in the spirit, is to address obvious sins. Like, before you confront somebody on, let's say, lust, or flirting with other people, or perhaps you got the covenant eyes report, and you see that they've been looking at, uh, basically, obscene images. It's worth asking yourself, okay, maybe that's not my battle. Perhaps 
I care too much about what people think. I, I lust for praise. Or I lust for attention. Or I lust for money. You know, there is a place for just sitting back and just seeing this sovereign moment as a chance of self-reflection. Deal with it in your heart and then make it very clear that your purpose is not to spiritually one-up the other person, but you really want to help them. And one of the checks that help them is to, is to really sit back and just say, am I making a charitable judgment here? And are the facts forcing me into this discussion? Because ultimately, the... The way the community is to be constructed is to err on the side of mercy. In James 2, 12 through 13, the Lord's half-brother says this, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, obviously, this doesn't mean that we never confront but we always err on the side of mercy. You make charitable judgments. So if somebody's short with you, assume maybe they're in some pain. Maybe there's something else going on in their life. Assume this is abnormal behavior until the facts prove otherwise. If someone is late, assume they have a valid excuse. Be inclined to believe it unless the facts prove otherwise. If someone seems rude, consider that their culture, in their culture, it may not be rude, or they just spoke in a clumsy way. That wasn't their heart. You see, when you have a community that is predisposed to giving grace, there will be peace and tranquility. But, but what happens when you don't make a charitable judgment? I read a news article this past week about a woman in Texas who broke into her boyfriend's home and set the couch on fire and caused $50,000 of damage. Now, why did she break into her boyfriend's home and set the couch on fire? Because earlier that day, she FaceTimed her boyfriend and another woman answered the phone. You can kind of understand that, right? Do you know who the other woman was? A relative. What would have happened if she would have made a charitable judgment? What would happen if she would have made a charitable judgment? How much conflict could be avoided if we start by making charitable judgments? What happens to a church that is ignited by division and conflict? See, ultimately, we are the only Bible that some people ever read. People may not read the Bible, but they'll come to church and see how we treat each other. And if we're a community of grace and mercy, we're able to basically communicate the mercy and grace of our God. As Christians, we are the most reconciled people on this planet, right? We were estranged from God. But God, out of love for us, sent his son who died on the cross to take that punishment for our sin. So that when we believe in him, we can be forgiven, we can be pardoned, we can be reconciled to God and reconciled to other people who are reconciled with God. And so when Jesus is speaking of this community, what he wants is a community not where people try to one-up one another, not where they rebuke each other to elevate themselves, but one that is characterized by charitable judgments because we're charitable judges 
We have received the charity, which is another phrase, the grace that comes from God. And our predisposition to, is to, to let it flow through us to other people, especially those who are part of our spiritual family. Let's pray. Well, Father, I pray that you will help our church to be a, one that judges charitably. And I thank you that that is the heart of so many people in this church, where they're inclined to give grace because they've received grace. But Lord, even though that might be the majority of the people here, I know that there's some people who really struggle with this. And it might be that something's going on in their life that is making them more cynical than otherwise. Could be past uh, abuse and hurts have colored it. There could be lots of reasons, Lord. But Lord, I pray that you will help them to see that there is a better path and a better way to be. Lord, we thank you for the grace you freely give us. We thank you that when you see us, you don't see all of our faults, all that we've done wrong, all the ways we have betrayed you and compromised our witness of you but that you see Christ, whose righteousness was freely given to us. And I pray that you'll just train our eyes, not, not to be naive, but to have hope and a, and a real belief in the Holy Spirit's power to change and transform people. And I pray that when people come into our body, they will see a church that truly, deeply loves each other because we have been loved by you and we have been changed by you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.